So the backcountry camps have scattered. Rangers have picked up their first cruise. Summer 2022 is officially in full swing. It's been nine years since I myself was on staff, and I can still recall the ease at which it was to pursue wonder, awe, beauty, and sensation through the music, time outdoors, creative problem solving, and meeting strangers who I quickly called friends. Each season on staff, I aimed to be all in, totally immersed and dedicated to my role and the new identity it offered. At Philmont, we come together to experience truth, share talent and passion, and embrace the curious nature of opportunity. 51 years ago, Brad Plum was given the opportunity to quit his summer gig lifeguarding and work instead as a PC at the then very quiet and secluded Clear Creek. It was, quote, the best summer of his life. Brad shares a description of Clear Creek somewhat unfamiliar to most of us. A place at the end of the earth, no electricity, no gas, and no direct contact to base camp. His experiences there were formative and primitive, learning to build a smokehouse to make jerky, and even partaking in a Rocky Mountain Grey Jay feast with scouts. His memories are romantic and idyllic. So after that primitive year at Clear Creek, Brad returned in 1972, which ended up being a much more active and diverse experience. He was hired to be a PC at Cyphers, but ended up a PC at CEDO, and later that same summer, CD at Crater. Brad shares stories from bear trap encounters and memorial latrines to being a part of the first officially approved repel of the Tooth of Time. Since his time on staff, Brad has been very active in the PSA and is currently on the board of directors. After participating in numerous PSA treks, volunteer vacations, and fill break, Brad celebrates the valuable work of volunteering and giving back. Brad closes the episode reflecting on how Philmont is an emotional experience, a place of intense relationships, lifelong bonds, and of soulmates. So to all those listening, continue to feed that crave, that urge to surround yourself with those important relationships, the ones who support your creative visions and meaningful pursuits in life. here today with Brad Plum. And uh, if you've listened, I interviewed Dave Plum, who is his son. And so um, it's kind of fun to piggyback on Dave's episode and have his dad on the show. Brad, so glad to have you here. How are you doing tonight? I'm great. How are you, Caitlin? I'm really, really good. It's a good Friday. And um, you guys, are you in... Your hometown is Kansas City area, is that Uh right? Overland Park, South Side. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Awesome. So you're yeah. coming from from that area, which I used to live in for mm-hmm. about a year, year and a half. Um, so just like the other episodes, it'd be awesome to take it way back and hear your story about how you were first introduced to Philmont Scout Ranch. Well, we're going to take it way, way back because I uh, went to Philmont as a camper in 1968. I, uh, I, I had a good experience, not a great experience. We were a young crew 
<laughs> some of us wanted to go to sea base and I think that we, we kind of went to film on, on a grudge and it's like, we're, we're carrying packs and, and it's, and we went to North country and it was hot and, and we were just a bunch of young guys. And so I went to Philmont in 68 for the next couple of summers. I was a lifeguard and a bunch of my buddies from my Explorer post were going to work at Philmont uh, in the summer of 1971. As a matter of fact, there were six of them from my Explorer post and they were all on staff, which was huge because I don't think anyone had six, six uh, guys from the same Explorer post. Right. And yeah. uh, so I had already started my job. I was a, a, a senior lifeguard instructor at, at the pool and I had already started and they were trying to convince me to go to Philmont. And I, so I get this call from out of the blue from Philmont from a guy by the name of Joe Clay. And, and he was the director of program and he goes, we want you to come to Philmont. And I said, hey, I've got this great job. You know, I don't I mean, I wear swim trunks all day and I hang out with with pretty girls and it's, it's, it's a pretty good <laughs> yeah. life. And, yeah. and besides that, I didn't say this to him, but I, I I thought to myself, yeah. And two of the guys are working in the kitchen down there. And I'm thinking swimming pool, kitchen, you know, is, you know, a long way from home. He, he says, Wait, I've got it. He says, I've got a, a position in the back country. And uh, he, he may have described it to me, but anyway, he was very convincing and I accepted the job and I went to the manager of the pool and I resigned on like day three. <laughs> and I was one of the head guys, at, you know, at that point. So I went to Philmont. So I get down there and they and I wasn't sure where I was going to be assigned. So sure enough, I get there and they go, we're going to send you to Clear Creek. And I go, great, Clear Creek. Never been there. Sounds like fun. Well, <laughs> I went from being uh, the bronze god, lower G uh, god, to be to uh, the most desolate camp on the ranch with no girls, no women. <laughs> so like all summer long, there weren't any girls at all. <laughs> and, and it was, it was, it has to be the, the best summer of my life. It was. How just, old were you? I was uh, 18. 18 years old. Okay. Eight, eight, 18. Yeah. And so it was just, uh, we get up there. I mean, it, it, it's, it's so different than 51 years ago than it is today. As an example, we could not speak directly to base camp. We had to relay our radio through Bobien. So we made radio calls twice a day. We checked in first thing in the morning and we checked in at dinner time. And other than that, we were off the grid. And of course, there were no there were no cell phones and there was no, we, we had no electricity. We had no gas. Everything, everything was very primitive. It was also very quiet. As a matter of fact, when we, we had a gas generator that ran the, the only thing it ran was the radio, the two-way radio. And we cranked that thing up twice a day and we hated it because it made so much noise because Clear Creek was quiet. It was just, it was peaceful and quiet and, and we were at the end of the earth and people forgot about us. This was six years after the flood and it was extremely hard to get to Clear Creek. The, the roads were pretty well wiped out on Philmont and they were, they were logging the Tolby mountain. And so they had a logging road up, up from the Canyon and they used that. And so for us to get to base camp was pretty easy because you'd hitch a ride with a logging truck. But 
people didn't like to drive up the road because they were afraid of meeting these loggers. And these sure. guys were in a hurry. They were trying to do three trips a day off, off of the mountain and because they were paid by the load. And probably the scariest thing that happened to me at Philmont was riding with one of these loggers in a cab over truck. And, and you'd get, you'd get there and you'd, I mean, the time was money to them. And so you made sure you were ready to go and you threw your, your pack in the back and you took off and this cab over truck, there's nothing in front of you, no engine or anything. So like you're <laughs> flying down the mountain and then flying down Cimarron Canyon and, and they're yelling at the Texans to get out of the way. And, <laughs> and they're zooming in and this, it was, it was, it was an experience to get down off the mountain, but we didn't have any visitors. The only, the only visitor that, that we knew would get is a commissary truck once every two weeks. And we would wow. get, we'd get a, we'd get a couple of days of fresh food and then, and, and that's it. And it, it was, it wasn't for everyone. As a matter of fact, the first kid that, I, that was a PC with me up there couldn't handle the, the desolation of it all. And he quit after about a month. And uh, it was just, it was just really, really remote, but it was certainly a culture shift for me. And uh, yeah. that fr fresh food would come in every two weeks. And the first time uh, we got uh, 10 pounds of Buffalo steak, it's like, uh, like a roast, 10 pound roast. And it's like, what do you do with 10 pounds of buffalo steak? And by the time we figured it out, that uh, it, it was it was rancid. And so we had to bury it. I mean, it's like, yeah. and then what do you, how do you get rid of it? And then, yeah. so the second time we, uh, it, we had a calm run, we were prepared for them. And we had this old single hole red roof in, and it was just a, it was just a little house. And we made it into a, a, a smokehouse and we made jerky. And so we stripped it up and, and uh, covered this uh, uh, red roof in with uh, with tarps and 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 then took our great big tub and we soaked we we soaked briny water uh, aspen chips and oh we gosh. and we made uh, ten pounds of jerky took uh, co coat hangers and, and and threaded them all out and hung them up above and it was as I remember it was very chewy but. So, but we didn't have any refrigeration. And so what do you do with a 10 pound roast? Because this is the headwater of the, of the uh, Ray Auto. We, we called it the Rayado Creek uh, at the time. And this is where it comes out of the ground. And so we had a metal milk crate down in the water underneath the spring. And then we had a, a piece of old cast iron scrap that you laid over the top of it to keep things from floating out and from animals getting to it for, and for a couple of days you had fresh food. And otherwise we were eating pretty much what the campers ate and they were all cooking on open fires. There were no stoves at the time. So consequently uh, things were a lot, much, much, much more primitive. We, uh, when we got there, the, the tents were set up right there next to the, the, that beautiful old cabin. And Gene Tyson was the camp director. And he says, we're going to move this out of here and we're going to move the, the platforms up the hill so you can't see them from the cabin. So as you hike up from Porcupine, the first thing, the only thing you see is this beautiful old cabin. And uh, so, but we, so we lived in the tents, but we cooked advisors, coffee and everything else. We cooked out of the cabin. And we had nice. this beautiful old stove. Uh, he was from North Carolina. He brought, uh, or maybe he sent back for some sa sourdough starter 
and we made bread and pancakes and it was idyllic. That is very different from, I think, what most people have experienced. At least my memory is is romantic. <laughs> Without anyone to be romantic with, it was it was a romantic <laughs> setting. It was yeah, it, it was really a, a great time. Did you have many crews? Do you remember how many crews a day you'd get on average? We'd get five or six crews a day, and the beauty of by the time they got to Clear Creek, these guys are seasoned. If if they had some rough spots, they were they were. Uh, they had worked through them. And so, so they were pretty efficient crews and, and some of them were headed uh, for Phillips the next day. So they didn't want to goof around. And we, we didn't, I cannot remember any health lodge problems. Well, with crews in camp, we did have an emergency that I can tell you about, but, but, but we didn't have any problems with, uh, with crews in camp at all, just because by day seven, eight, or nine, uh, they had uh, they pretty well gone through them. Tell you how desolate uh, we how how far removed we were. We'd send our outgoing mail with the crews because some of them were on day nine, and we'd we'd look at these we'd look at these advisors and say, yeah, he's pretty trustworthy. We can and and we and every camp had a mailbox and we sold stamps, and so these kids would write postcards and we sold postcards. Kids would write postcards and put them in the mailbox, and little did they know that we were handing them to maybe even their own advisor to take back <laughs> home because it, it might sit there for two weeks. Uh, because, <laughs> I, as a matter of fact, we did a lot more letter writing back then, I think, than people do today because that was our only way of communication. So we wrote lots of letters to girlfriends and parents and people back home, and uh, my parents. In no, about November of that year, uh, called me up. I was at K State. Called me up at school and said, "Hey, I just we just got a, a letter from you from Philmont." I go, "No kidding." I said, "Where <laughs> where where is it postmarked?" And he goes, "My dad says Monroe, Louisiana." <laughs> and what? this advisor had gone home and lost oh. it. He probably found it in his backpack four months later. Dropped it in the mailbox. So, I love it. I like that he followed through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good guy. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, the um, the radio uh, was uh, was really again we didn't we hated the radio and I hated to get up in the morning because it was so cold up there. Yeah, get first thing in the morning. Yeah. So my camp director decided to put this portable generator underneath my we each, we each had our own tent and he put the generator underneath my tent and <laughs> he would get up first thing in the morning and start the generator which was right underneath my bed. And I mean, not only was the, this rumble, I mean, then you start smelling carbon monoxide and I would roll over still in my sleeping bag and make the call to Bobby in. And, and they never knew that I was, hadn't gotten out of bed yet. And, and so I called and checked in. There was, I don't remember ever, and I had a piece of paper and a pencil with, there, but I don't remember ever having to take a note. We, we got our... We got our schedule for the next day. We got our cruise in the evening. And so and the morning call was nothing. And so I'd, I'd roll over. That was every morning. I'd roll over, call Bobby in, get off as soon as I could, get dressed and run around outside of my tent without my boots on and shut off the generator so, <laughs> so I wouldn't get gassed out. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the emergency that summer? <laughs> Late one night. We had a kid come into camp 
And we had a, a visiting ranger. Uh, we didn't get very many visitors, but he was there that night. And uh, this kid says, our advisors had a heart attack and they were at Red Hills. And Red Hills was one of our trail camps. You had to go downhill and back uphill to get to Red Hills. There was no good direct route. And he says, we've had a heart attack and it's a bad emergency, blah, blah, blah. And so this guy and I, so we tried, we cranked up the generator, couldn't get a hold of Bobian. And which meant we had to run to Bobian. And so this ranger and I, in the middle of the night, ran from Clear Creek to Bobian. About, it's about six miles. It's almost yeah. all downhill until you get to Phillips PJ. Which what's now PJ? There was PJ wasn't there then, but the, what I remember about that we were of course we were in excellent shape. I mean we're eighteen or eighteen years old and you're walking all the time and you're at ten thousand feet and so running downhill was no big deal. The big deal that I remember was after the flood there were the trail along the trail there were all these mud flats. Uh, flats. So it was big, wide areas. And we hadn't seen any bears, but we had seen where bears would sleep at night in those mud flats because it'd be warm uh, along the trail. And uh, we didn't have these little portable flashlights like you have today. We had this big seal beam with a six volt battery, about the, half the size of a shoebox. And I'm, we're running down the trail yelling to, to get the bears off the trail. And for six miles, that was my first 10K. My, we ran <laughs> <laughs> we ran down, down the mountain, both of us yelling with our flashlights shining as far ahead as we could because we were afraid of getting a bear. But it was by the time we got to Bobian, they got somebody up there uh, to him and they got him to Raton. Uh, it was about 15 hours after the incident. And uh, yeah, so it was, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were a long way from anywhere, but uh, I have mixed emotions about going back there now because it's a, it's a shooting camp and I'm so used to being so quiet and so peaceful and tranquil. And, and I've (laughs) been back program, uh, uh, wilderness survival. Oh, okay. And, and, uh, a little so, different, yeah, yeah, from yeah, shooting. Very, yeah, very different. Now, bear in mind uh, that uh, back then we were wearing full scout uniforms, including okay. knee socks and garters and tabs. And uh, we didn't have to wear neckerchiefs, but we had to wear scout pants or shorts and a scout shirt. So we'd go, do I'd do my wilderness survival program. We had before, uh, right after uh, Scatter and before we had any crews, we had two Air Force survival specialists that came up and trained us in, in uh, wilderness survival. And, and these guys were just awesome. And one of the things they taught us how to do was how to, they said, okay, in your, your survival situation, we had all these gray jays up there, big, tall birds, Rocky Mountain gray jays. Okay, yeah. And uh, we said, uh, we say, okay, in a survival situation, uh, you can you can kill a, a bird, and if you don't have anything to cook it in, you can wrap it in mud and put it in a fire. And and so this is all hypothetical, of course. I mean, yeah, I'm not, not going to do that. It sounds disgusting. So <laughs> we're walking through campsites one night, checking you know on campers and seeing how they're doing, and uh, we did that quite a bit. I think 
partially because we were bored. And there was a lot more communication back then with this, with the campers. And these, and these guys said, Hey, come over to our camp. We're cooking a gray Jay. <laughs> and they, oh my gosh. they did it. They, they killed, they killed a Rocky mountain gray Jay. They packed him in mud and they had him in the fire and they were inviting us over to eat it with them. And uh, awesome. we did. Yeah, we did. Awesome. Oh yeah, my gosh. The feathers came off with the, with the mud and there's this, Kind of a carcass of a bird, and how was uh, it? It tasted kind of like chicken. <laughs> hey, well, that's a success. So yeah. you, even though it was this incredible culture shock, it was like you said, one of the best summers of your lives, and uh, yeah. you you came back in 1972 um, for another summer, and that summer you were. Uh, you tell me about this because you were ACD CEDO, and then. Camp Director Crater mm-hmm. for half half beginning of the summer and then half the summer you were you moved. So, what was uh yeah what was nineteen seventy two like for you, Brad? My uh, my contract was to come back and be um, PC at Cyphers. Oh, and I was pretty excited about you know, coming sure. back and, and being at Cyphers Mine. I and I had never been to Cyphers Mine either, but it had a great reputation and everybody loved it. And I thought, well, that's going to be great. Well, I get there and they go, well, we've got to change your plans and uh, uh, you're going to be at Cimarron-Cito, a camp that I, another camp that I'd never been to. And I go, great. And they go, uh, you're going to be the assistant camp director, but Bill Shriver is going to be the camp director and he is taking finals and he's not going to be here until several days after Scatter and you need to open the camp. So I went from the smallest camp to the largest <laughs> camp. And opened it. The best thing about that was I had this group of guys that were just awesome. They just, I mean, just can do, I mean, they were great. And and we had that camp picked up and in ship shape in no time at all. We had, that, that was only the fifth year for rock climbing at Philmont. And, and they hired professional climbers who were not scouters. They were professional climbers. And Lee Davis is one of the climbers. And he, he had, at that point, uh, several peaks that he had named. He was the first one to climb the peaks and several routes of, of mountains that, that he had climbed. He was just a famous, pretty famous climber. Yeah. And, and uh, so he was on our staff. And, and, uh, but we got base camp. We got the, the cabin all cleaned up and ready to go. We get this radio call about day three, and it says uh, Joe Davis, who was the camp director at Philmont, he says, Joe Davis is coming up uh, on horseback with a couple of VIPs. We'd really like for you to uh, show them uh, every courtesy when they come to camp. Or, I don't know what they said. So, mm-hmm. great. So, so sure enough, about uh, they said they'll be here there in about an hour. And so we... The cook, we had a full-time cook and his name was Burquist. And he says, okay, he says, we're going to have bug juice and cookies. And he says, I got, we had a red checkered tablecloth and we put out this red checkered tablecloth and someone went and got some wildflowers and put them in a vase. We, we were like over the top for these VIPs. We had no idea who was coming, but we know, but we really respected Joe Davis and we didn't want to embarrass him. And so sure enough, about an hour later, coming up from the hunting, the trail from the hunting lodge, uh, oh, well, through the meadow, were these three horses. And there's Joe Davis, and he's this big barrel-chested, burly guy on a horse, bald-headed, and you knew who he was. And here was this guy who, back then we called it, would refer to them as the Marlboro Man. He was just the, this 
cowboy with a rugged face and and he looked like he was born on a horse and 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 a woman who uh, w- w- with him and she was dressed up in calico like you know and you could tell they weren't Philmont because their horses w- were were beautiful they were they're, they're just good looking horses and Philmonts they're just kind of boring old horses like you know trail horses and these were like show horse kind of horses yeah. and their tack was not Philmont's tack this, okay. They look like they were coming from a parade. Wow. <laughs> look like they were coming from the American Royal Parade. So they come into camp, and there's Joe Davis, and he hops off his horse, and he introduces me to Chope and Virginia Phillips. And I didn't oh know who, my I, I didn't know who they were. I go, oh, great to see you. Hey, welcome to Cimarroncito. You know, come on in, have some cookies. And we let them do their thing. And <laughs> it was about a week later that I found out who Chope Phillips was. And uh, the grandson of Wade Phillips, and uh, or the son of Wade Phillips, excuse me. So that was that was pretty cool. But, yeah, no kidding. Uh, they had a wonderful experience there. I mean, through the whole thing, and I don't know, I don't know any of the details of why he was bringing. Uh, they were doing this horseback tour, but from that moment forward, I had, I was, I had a great friendship. Uh, with Joe Davis that lasted until his death many, many, many years later. And we corresponded a lot. As a matter of fact, I ran across one of his letters the other day when I was preparing for this. And, uh, but it was that first meeting uh, with uh, Virginia and Joe Phillips, who I didn't know um, at, uh, at Cimarroncito. So that wow. was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. I love that story. We, we had but- a lot of bears at that. That summer, in summer of 1972, actually made national news. You know, like the whole the whole ranch, or just the whole ranch. Actually, okay. actually, national. Uh, it was Clark's Fork that made the national news from the um, because of the bears. Back then, of course, we didn't we didn't know as much about bears as we do today. Uh, we weren't at nearly as sophisticated. We didn't have bear cables. Every crew was expected to take their their food, but, but really they didn't, we didn't, the, the term smellable hadn't been ter- uh, coined yet. Okay. And they were to take their food and put it in a, a, a heavy duty garbage bag that, that they got at base camp and, and haul it up a tree. And with, with varying success, depending on where you were, what kind right. of trees there were. Right. And, and, and plus cooking was dehydrated food and some freeze dried food. And about four o'clock every day, you started to cook. And about four o'clock every afternoon at Cedo, you could start to hear pots and pans banging in the woods somewhere. And you could almost track the bear from campsite to campsite to campsite. And it was a pretty easy gig for the bear because he'd come up and, and, and growl and, and scare off the kids who was, who was stirring a pot. And the bear would come in and eat the eat the food and, and and go to the next camp, and so it was it was a pretty good deal. So we had we had bear traps the, in camp all the time. We had this one uh, bear trap that was different than the rest. And you know, you think of a bear trap as being a big long tube, big long cylinder with a with a guillotine in the end. The uh, forester was a guy by the name of Mac McLean, and I swear he built this thing, and it was it was rectangular. So you think of a rectangular frame, and instead of and instead of being covered with like uh, aluminum plate or something, it was covered with 
storm fence, which was, or cyclone fence, which is regular chain link fence, but a lot sturdier. So okay. it was this rectangular box that you could see into from any side. And then it had the, the guillotine door. So Mac McLean comes up with this rectangular box and he puts it up in, up just outside of the staff cabin there, about up the hill, about, I don't know, 150 yards or so. Cool, no big deal. Happens every day, but this is a different one. So sure enough, in the middle of the night, and he says, if you hear the door shut, go and, and put slide the pin in so the bear doesn't try to pry up the door and get out. So you have to put this little pin in the door. Okay, that's fine. So Shriver and I, uh, Bill Shriver, who, who I owe so much, he's a terrific leader. We were roommates and became best friends. Gregarious guy and, and just it still is. And he's a lifelong scouter. He's very involved with his district back home now. Maybe council as well. But anyway, he, he'd stand up on the porch at Cedo and say, hi, I'm Bill Shriver. Welcome to Cimarron Cedo. And, and, and he was just, everybody was his buddy and he was just very, extremely outgoing yeah. and terrific. Yeah. And I learned a lot from him. Well, anyway, we're, I, I think we're probably both asleep and then we hear this boom and we hear the door slam shut. And he goes, you want to go up there and shut that? And I go, put the pin in. I go, no. So finally, we both went up there. We walked up there, and sure enough, there is a, a bear in the trap. And right before we got up there, we could see a baby bear running off oh, into no. the woods. And so we get up there, and this this bear, mother bear, is all kinds of upset. I mean, she is rocking this thing, bouncing back and forth. Neither one of us wanted to approach the trap, but we finally did. And, and somewhere along the line, you could hear the baby bear whimpering, too. It's like... This is not going to end well. And so we, I, I think, I think Shriver actually put the pin in because I was afraid to. And so he put the pin in while I held the flashlight because I didn't want to get anywhere near that trap yeah. because you could see the bear. I mean, yeah. you could see this bear as big as life. Up there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so sure enough, uh, we go back to our bunks and about, I don't know, an hour later, we hear this explosion up in the up in the woods in the in the same vicinity as the trap was well, that's weird uh, what, what could that be well very reluctantly very reluctantly we got out of bed and got dressed and took our big seal beam flashlights up to the lantern up there and sure enough no bear the bear trap is empty it's gone what is left is a hole in the side of the bear trap about a foot in diameter and where the tire was, the, there wasn't a fender on this trailer. It was just an open tire. The, the, the top half of the tire was gone. And there's blood everywhere. Oh, no. So what had happened, so what we surmise is that the mama bear trying to get to the baby got her nose in that cyclone fence and worked it and worked it and worked it. Never broke it, but just worked it until it was a big enough hole that she could get her paw through, at which time she grabbed the tire and, and caused it to explode. Yeah. And, and, and when it popped, at some point, she was able to pull her entire body out. Never found the bear. We called Mac the next morning, told him to come and get his trap and bring up the tire. So. <laughs> I mean, I guess the moral of the story <laughs> is don't mess with a mama bear, I guess. <laughs> oh, you, oh, no. Well, probably one of the more dangerous 
things that happened to me on Philmont was getting between a mama deer and a, a, a doe and a fawn huh. and uh, up above bear caves uh, going to going to crater one time. And I just I just walked into the situation where mom's on one side and baby's on the other. And she charged me. So, Mother nature. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, you don't mess with moms. No. <laughs> My goodness. So, yeah. oh, I just, I love all these stories. So you were, <laughs> you were at CEDO till uh, July 25th and then you um, <clears throat> transitioned to being camp director at Crater Lake. What, what uh, happened there? <laughs> so July 25th used to be Christmas. Now Phil Fiesta. Yes. Phil Fiesta is, is such a better deal because Christmas was just one day and and you might get invited to two or three, if you were in base camp, two or three or four different camps. You could only go to one Christmas party. Yeah. And it was just, that was it. That was the day. So it was on Christmas day and there was all that we had, we'd cut down this big tree and it was in the, it was in the cabin and there were all these Christmas presents underneath it. And I don't know what we, we decorated it somehow. Uh, and then Berkey, Berkwist, our, our cook, had the, uh, we'd invited a whole bunch of people up there. And, we, and because we were a big camp and easy to get to, we had a whole bunch of people coming and uh, from, from base camp and wherever. He'd taken an old cot, a metal cot, uh, and, and used it. He was using it as a grill. And so he'd, he'd built this great big fire and, and had all these coals, and he was going to grill steaks. I'd helped him put together this, the, the, these coals and everything. And we get this call from base camp that says Dave Bates is, is coming up. Back then there was radio was, was taken so much, much more seriously. There wasn't any uh, weather report or, or any, you, you couldn't pass personal messages on the, I mean, it was 10 code on and off done. And so I get, we get this call and it's very short and very succinct. And he says, Brad Plum has been reassigned. Have him ready to go in an hour. Okay. And that's it. Okay. <laughs> pa- packed up and ready to go. I mean, it was a mystery. I didn't know if I was getting fired, which could have happened. <laughs> and I, I had no idea what was, what was, what was happening. And so sure enough, Dave Bates, who was um, director of, uh, what was Dave Bates? Um, he, he wasn't director of program, but he was one of the higher one of the higher up permanent staff. Great guy, and he uh, picked me up and he says, uh, "The entire staff at Crater Lake has been fired, and you're the new camp director." And I go, "Okay." And and uh, you know, they, as I'm walking out, they give me my the Christmas present that's underneath the tree, and oh, well. I didn't get my. Didn't get my steak, yeah. And I'm going. I'm going to another camp that I've never been to before. <laughs> and so we get. So and they pulled two rangers off the trail. And for the rest of the summer, uh, I was at, at Crater Lake. We get to Crater Lake, and it's it's by the time we get there, it's about dark, and and, and get everybody assembled, and we meet the outgoing staff. They're being hauled away as we're coming in. It's really unfortunate. I I don't know any of those guys. I don't know that I've ever. I'm sure I've never met them. But the st- the camp was in excellent shape. <laughs> they had uh, they they had a, a, f- a fatal mistake though that day. But but um, <clears throat> they got them all fired. But so sure enough, we have eight crews in camp, and 
Uh, and back then, when you're cooking on an open fire, every every crew had to be released from campsite. So when when you worked up in the backcountry, one of the crew chief or somebody would come down and say, hey, we're ready to be checked out. You would have to walk up there. What you were looking for specifically is the fire pit because the fire pit had to be cold and it couldn't have any aluminum foil or any plastic in it. And if it did, they had to go back through and do it over again. I see. Well, yeah. And it was, a, it was, it was never a problem at Clear Creek because these guys were, had been down the road. Yeah. This was day eight or yeah. nine. They, yeah. they knew how to, yeah. So, but, but, but Crater, this is day two or day three. Okay. And it's, and, and, and it's oftentimes the first night, first, yeah, without their first morning after the ranger had just left. Mm-hmm. And it's like, ah, there's aluminum foil in here. You got to go start all over or the, or the coals are not cold yeah. or, or whatever. It was. So did you have to do that well, your first night, like upon arrival? We, I, didn't, I didn't know where the campsites were and we didn't know wh- who was in what campsite. And so we had to wait for people to come down and we'd say, don't leave. <laughs> no, don't say we're in campsite seven. Come on up. No, we'll follow you up there. So, so we'd go back up there in crater is is on a hill and so i mean we were in great shape yeah <laughs> i mean you're you're walking all the time yeah when, when you have to when you have to check a, a crew in and out of a of a campsite you know every single crew it's a lot of uh effort but but anyway uh, yeah these guys had uh, had had spiked a watermelon uh on christmas and and fed it to their to their sector director oops so anyway, um, so th- I don't remember much about that the rest of that summer, just because it was it was just a blur. Yeah, we not only did we have to to check everybody out and everybody in the next day, but we had to give program. And uh, <laughs> I mean, when you when you summarily dismiss a staff of a camp and you have expect somebody else to come in and take over, uh, that's it. That's causes some real challenges. And, and so we had to deal with that. Yeah, so. no kidding. You you then came back in 1973 as the camp director at Crater Lake. And that was your, that's right. that was your last summer on seasonal <clears throat> staff. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. So you did get yeah. um, to come back to Crater. Uh, what was that summer like for you? Loved it. I had the best crew. We, we taught orienteering and we, so we had another non-scout. We had the Canadian National Orienteer. He was the Canadian champion at the time. His name is Robin Slack. And the Silva Compass Company, if you look at your Boy Scout compass, it says Silva on it. And Silva Compass out of Sweden provided, sold, or provided all of the compasses for, for the Boy Scouts. So consequently, Silva, because we are one of their, we're their second largest uh, customer next to the U.S. military, they provided us with this this person to train uh, orienteering all summer. And he was awesome. Yeah. And uh, he was very Canadian and he insisted we had to go and cut a flagpole. And that summer we had two flagpoles at Crater, one on either on, on either side of the two sets of buildings there. And every morning raised the Canadian flag along with the American flag every single day that summer. It was very Canadian. I love it. Uh, Neat. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah, it was, we just, we just had a real great time with, with, uh, with Robin Slack. We, uh, we had a visitor that summer. We had 
Bjorn Kellström is the guy's name, and he was the president, and he flew in from Sweden, and he came to Philmont to check on uh, the orienteering program. Wow. The, the, the orienteering program was hard to sell because, again, day two or day three, and you're running through scrub oak, and it was just, it was, uh, we, uh, we could get them to, to sit through the lecture, but they didn't want to run the course. Yeah. Now, bear in mind that 1973 was an interesting time because this was the first summer for women to be in the backcountry. But uh, so unannounced, one day we get these two pilot to co-pilot box latrines and they just dropped them off in the breezeway between, in, between the cabins. I, I got to say that the Boy Scouts of America really didn't know what to do with women. <laughs> initially it, it it was a lot rougher start and it's almost laughable today i mean you look back and you go you must be kidding me you guys were neanderthals and i go yeah kind of so what they told us to do they said well we need to make sure that the that there's some privacy for these uh, box latrines so we want you to put to find two large trees that are relatively close together two very large trees and then dig a pit between these two large trees so you can put the box, the box latrine there and then take parachute cord about six foot up, wrap it around these two trees so the girls can come and drape either shelter halves or well, they used ponchos instead of rain suits back then, ponchos or shelter halves um, or whatever. Uh, so you'd, so you'd have privacy. So being the dutiful camp, staff that we were we found this this and, and we started digging and of course between two very large trees you have very large roots and the whole idea was just kind of silly and but we tore this bejesus out of out of the roots out of this tree out of two trees to, to make sure this box latrine was put into place and we did it and it was just miserable and we thought this is really dumb and so the second box latrine sat there for about two weeks. And everyone that come in and they'd be they'd make jokes about our box latrine sitting there in the breezeway. And we didn't have for some reason we didn't move it, so it was there. And so I went down to base camp at some point. I don't think this was my idea, quite frankly. <laughs> Someone said, Bring back some paint. And so I knew one of the guys in the maintenance department, and I said, do you have any open paint cans? I don't want to take new paint, but do you have any open paint cans? And he says, yeah, I got paint and, so, and some old brushes. And so sure enough, I got sky blue and white and red. And so we decided to paint this box latrine before we installed it. And we painted it uh, pink and white. We mixed red and, and white together and had pink and, and then blue. And, and then had the, the stack was... was uh, barber pole, red and white. And <laughs> back then the trail up from, from bear caves or up from lovers was, was on the front side of that ridge. They've moved it now into the trees, but before it was wide open and it had this spectacular view of the tooth of time and that we would go read back then. You also read. And so I read, <laughs> I remember reading Jonathan Livingston Seagull and the Hobbit both very popular at the time, yeah. in this in this meadow alongside the trail. So we decided to go down that trail a little bit 
and and up above it decided to to drop in this box latrine Nat- and naturally was, yeah well there were no roots yeah, i yeah. mean it was like out in this meadow yeah. and so so sure enough we had the absolute best view of the tooth of time from this box latrine <laughs> it was spectacular it was it was awesome i mean it was just it was a, a thing of beauty so <laughs> But it's no good if you don't advertise it. And so we came up with these signs. And again, the trail coming up from Lovers. And it was a sign that said, visit the Crater Lake Memorial Latrine, New Mexico, one quarter mile or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it said. So there was a that we made a little path up to it. You couldn't see it from the, the trail. And so, at the, so we had this sign with an arrow on it that said, drop your packs, you know, 150 feet up. And so they drop their packs. I think that we even put on their take your camera, you know? And so sure enough, all these guys would, would walk up to the box latrine. So, <laughs> with a view, with a view. With a view. <laughs> Rod Taylor was there about, I think about 10 years after we were. And uh, he had told us that uh, he'd seen that latrine was still there 10 years later. <laughs> so in, in the seventies uh, was something that was, that was, well known, in, especially in the South Country. Yeah. Oh my goodness. About a week before I left Cimarroncito, uh, the the head rock climber is a guy by the name of Lee Davis. I mentioned before. He wanted to climb the Tooth of Time. Well, no one had ever gotten permission to climb the Tooth of Time before. So, so you're talking like I, rock climb, like not just yeah. Okay, climb up it. Yeah, yeah climb up it about 600 feet. Okay, yeah. the face. So the face. That's right. And so consequently, uh, I had this special friendship with Joe Davis, and he said, and so he convinced me to ask Joe Davis if if we could climb the two the time, not me, him, uh, because I certainly not a rock climber, but I could repel. I don't know how, I don't know why, but he get, but Joe Davis, the camp, the director of camping at Philmont gave us permission to repel and then climb the two the time. <clears throat> so, that, so that's what we did. So we went over and we got, yeah, got there and we had 250 foot purlon ropes we tied together, wrapped them around a tree, and headed down over the edge. And we got uh, down to toward the end of that rope, 125 feet or so. And then we pounded two pitons, two or three pitons into the wall, and fastened our swami belts into the pitons, and then pulled the rope down after them, and then did the same thing two more times and made it to the bottom. Wow. So, yeah, and it was, and and the thing is, this was not going to be any big deal. I mean, it was in <laughs> repelling, especially something like a that large of a face is not for the faint of heart, but it is not technically difficult, as difficult as certainly as climbing or as dangerous. And I won't say it's dangerous, but it's, it's you know, daring. Let's, we'll call it daring. So, but, but we were going from side to side on this face as, as much as we could to check, to look for routes that, that for, for him to climb. 
We were also clean. It's interesting because we were the first official rappel down the tooth of time, and we were cleaning off pitons from <laughs> climbers who had been there before. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Unofficially. Yeah. 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 And uh, not many, but we picked up a handful of pitons that uh, very, very old pitons, as a matter of fact, that uh, that were that were there before. You get to the bottom, and uh, and it's a spectacular day, and and but we really didn't think anything of it. My scout executive was in at PTC at the time, and I went and told him about it, and he goes, "Wow, that's really something! You just repelled the tooth of time." Yeah, repelled the tooth of time. Da 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 da. He goes, uh, he says, "Well, he says, let's put that in the paper." So he overblew this thing, and <laughs> and, and it ended up becoming. A, a wire photo and was was printed all over the place. It it, it hit several papers in in Texas. Uh, I think I sent you the uh, article from the Albuquerque paper and the Kansas City paper, and and maybe a couple of others. But the I mean the bigger event was going to be the climb, but the uh, <laughs> the, the the headline was Scouts Conquer Tooth. Well, no, not really, not yet. Not me, but that was that was a big event. Yeah. So how so, how long did it take you to rappel down it? Uh, um, I don't know, three hours maybe. We were in no hurry. Yeah. It was a beautiful day. I mean, we, I mean, we were just just really enjoying ourselves. We were just going slow, and he was he was mapping a route up, and uh, yeah. Lee Davis climbed it. Yeah, and and Photo Lab, which is the um, I don't know what they call photo the photo people now at Philmont, but it was photo lab then. And they met us at the bottom. And so that's what that picture was that I sent you that was sent to the, to the wire service was, uh, was actually a Philmont official photo. Mm. Well, there were, there was more than one there, three or four of them. So about a week later, I'm now at Crater Lake and, uh, I get this. Um, so this chaplain shows up in his little Bronco and he goes, uh, and he's really serious. And he goes, you have an emergency phone call from home. <laughs> I go, oh, oh, emergency phone call from home. I mean, someone's died. This is just terrible, whatever. So sure enough, I get in there and he is kind of, kind of preparing me for some sad, you know, emergency as I, as we're driving from crater to base camp. And he says, you need to call your mom. So I call my mom and my mom rest her soul, was, uh, was an angel on earth. And um, she was the most angelic person, but man, she was so mad. She says, I just read in the paper that you have this death wish and you were repelling down this mountain. And, uh, I forgot to tell my parents. I mean, no, it wasn't important enough to tell your parents about it. wasn't that big a deal. And I didn't know it was going to be in the paper. Yeah. I mean, no one, I mean, we didn't know, we didn't know there was no news. There was no radio. There was uh, there was no no communication to the outside world. Yeah, especially at Clear Creek, there was zero communication. We we had shortwave radios at at Cedo and at uh, Crater. We had great reception onto the plains with uh, with shortwave radio. Yeah, yeah. The news was like so. Do you you know the old uh, John Denver song, uh, "Country Roads"? Yeah. It came out in the summer of 1971 when I was at, at Clear Creek, and I was on a date with my, my now wife uh, at that fall, and this it came on in the restaurant, and I'm going, what's that song? And she goes, 
that song's been number one all summer long. Haven't you heard it? And no, yeah. I've never heard it. I, I don't have a radio. Yeah. We don't have access to a radio. So you rappelled down the tooth with, with Lee Davis oh, yeah. in 72. And mm-hmm. okay, this is my personal experience. I've hiked the tooth once, uh, which many people have done it many more times. But I was like, oh, no big deal. We'll wake up in the morning and hike, <laughs> hike the tooth from base, you know, on one of my days off. And I, when you get to the, the part where you start hiking up the boulders, you're like, oh, like this is a, this is it's pretty serious. serious. Yeah. And then you get to the top and you're mm-hmm. like, whoa, like I am teeter, could, mm-hmm. could be possibly teetering off this giant cliff face. Um, and so yep. I was really humbled uh, by mm-hmm. the tooth at the time. I was like, okay, this is, it's not, you know, it's not like Baldy Mountain, you know, that with the elevation, but <coughs> it's different. Uh, and so you have to consider the professional um, skill. So I, I assume that's mm-hmm. why, I assume that's why it's not a climbing route today. Um, the safety. I think the rock is safe. I think that there's no reason f- for the Boy Scouts of America to have the liability of people up there on that on that rock. Right. And yes. I think that's I, th- I think that's the deal. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting that last summer uh, at the uh, National BSA uh, Boy Scout Museum uh, at Philmont, I'm I got to meet up with Lee Davis. We they were doing an audio history of that rappel. Oh my gosh! And 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 the climbing program at Cedo. Yeah. And that's the first time I've seen him since 1972. And and so we met last summer and had a terrific little reunion. Yeah. And I kind of lost track when I, I was up to my ears when I got to Cedo or Crater. Excuse me. For the rest of that summer, I I lost track of what. Lee Davis and the guys at, at Cimarron Cedar were doing, but he went ahead and climbed it. He actually climbed it twice. And this is all in the audio files at, at the National Scout Museum. You can, you can listen to this tape, but he climbed it the first time and he said it was really dangerous because I guess I, I never, I've never seen this happen. He says, but the scouts were throwing rocks over the edge. And they didn't know that someone was climbing it. Oh. And so so he got so he climbed it the first time. And the second time he he had somebody up there telling people not to throw rocks over the edge of the tooth because there was a climber coming up. Yeah. And uh, but the first time he said he said was uh, pretty treacherous. No kidding. Because. Yeah. Because people didn't know that he was he was down there. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Goodness sakes, the tooth of time. Wow. Yeah. yeah, be careful up there, folks. I don't know, Brad. These stories are so fun. <laughs> They're so fun to capture. Um, so thanks for sharing those with the listeners. Uh, sure. I do want to acknowledge all the work you've done with the Philmont Staff Association. I mean, you've been on eight PSA treks, four volunteer vacations, one fill break. Uh, you were a board member 2003 to 2005. You're currently a board member. Being a member of the PSA is just is is the best investment you could make, especially the fact that you have so many opportunities to come back to film. On. Yeah. But it's interesting, too, that there, if, if you look at the, the time frame, there was a 26 year gap between the time I worked there and the time I went back to film on. I'm going, why? Why did it take me? I, I've asked myself this many times. Why did I? 
why did it take me so long? And of course, you're wrapped up with having kids and raising a family. And I own my own company. And so blah, 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 blah. And so life got in the way of Philmont. But that is not an excuse, especially now with the Philmont Staff Association and every opportunity to go back and give back. You go back and give back. I mean, we build trail. And, uh, and it's, and I mean, you're, you, you're leaving a mark on Philmont that's going to be there for, I don't know, how many, how long does a trail last? And I mean, it's just, and the kind of people that you're building trail with, they're volunteering their time to do this. You're certainly not getting paid. Yeah. Or to do this, this fire cleanup work that we're doing. It's all just so, such valuable work. And it's an opportunity to, to see the back country and hang out with like-minded people. And, yeah. you know, I, I've asked myself, like, you know, about that time, that 26-year gap. Well, around the 1990s, there was a book that a guy wrote, and it was a best-selling book. And it was called uh, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. If you If you Google it, I mean, no one's ever heard of it now, but if you Google it, it really was a best-selling book. Well, I wrote an essay and gave a speech called All I All I Really Needed to Learn was at Philmont. So even though I was and then I and then when I came back to PTC to, to do some uh, training in 1996, I gave that speech because wh- where where do you have that responsibility in your real life? It was years. It was years in my in my real world that I had the the same kind of management authority in real life that I had as a 20-year-old. Yeah. I mean, we we had a heart attack on top of Trail Peak where we gathered my my team together and we hiked up to the top of Trail Peak. That's an that's another story. Do we have time for one more story? Ab- absolutely. So sure enough, we have another heart attack. The kids dad or advisors on top of Trail Peak. We have this circa Korean War portable radio. If you've seen the television show MASH, it's like that radio and it's strapped on, it's lashed on to a, a wooden pack frame. We have a Stokes litter and a first aid kit. And we, and so we head up the mountain all along the way. I'm talking on, this is the same radio that we use to check in at night. It's a portable radio and battery operated radio. And I'm talking on the radio and sure enough, we relaying and, and communicating and we get up there and we, and we stabilize the guy and put him on this and on the Stokes litter and we get a team together and we get down to where the four wheel drive unit can pick him up. Fast forward, geez, 30 years, maybe 25 years, probably I'm in cub leader training in Lenexa, Kansas. And in the back of the room, I hear this voice and boy, I get, I get shivers uh, telling the story. And I hear this voice and I'm going, I recognize that voice, and but I didn't know what it was. So I went back and introduced myself to John Nickel. And it was the guy that I was communicating with at Control. Wow. And I didn't know who he was. Yeah. I, I don't know that I ever met him at the time. I mean, it was just one of those experiences. And I recognized his voice. And he didn't live in Kansas City at the time. He had moved to Kansas City. And I go, I went back there and I go, you didn't happen to work at Philmont about 30 years ago, or 1973. Oh, yeah, I worked in, I worked in control. And I, I go, do you remember this heart attack on the mountain there and, and, and Trail Peak? And he goes, well, yeah. And it, it was one of those overwhelming memories. It's like <laughs> that I didn't even, I mean, it was an emotional experience that I didn't even know I had. 
And it's that kind of intense, intense relationship and the bond that you have uh, that you, that you develop. It's 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 why I keep going back. The Philmont Staff Association does so much, and it's constantly thinking up new mm-hmm. ways to get people involved. And oh yeah, I'm so appreciative for for all the people, all the volunteers, everyone who make that happen and make that possible. I'm a lifetime member too. And I just, yeah, if, if anyone's listening, who's not a member of the PSA, definitely check it out. It's worth your time. And it just helps you stay connected to those, those meaningful experiences and the best of the best people, you know, go to Philmont and go back to Philmont through the Philmont staff association. So if you wanted to do a trek, imagine that you, that you worked at, I don't know, some, you you worked at Bobby Inn some summer. So you, so you go, I want to go back to Bobby Inn. Well, you design a trek. I mean, you don't do the trek that the the, the scouts do. You design the trek that you want to go on and enough, and enough people on your trek want to go to Bobby Inn. You do. Yeah. And I've been, I've been everywhere multiple times uh, just because we were, I was on a trek, not me personally, but I was on a trek with people that wanted to go back. Yeah. And so you get back to that camp and then you hear these stories that they tell about when they were on staff and it's just, it's, it's a rush. It's just the best. Yeah. So. And now there's volunteer vacation, there's fill break, there's all mm-hmm. sorts of different ways sure. to trek or, and to give back, like you said, and uh I just, I can't wait to, I'm, I'm in that phase of like chaos with the, the raising a family, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. I'm definitely excited to be able to hit the trail uh, sooner than later, hopefully, and uh, do some of those PSA treks. Yeah. And, and now that you can do family camp, you can, I mean, you can do that. Uh, when you interviewed Dave, he was, he was telling about how our nine, I think it was she, Megan was nine when she, when we, when I went to PTC drug her along kicking and screaming and, and we were afraid to stop the car on the way from Kansas City to Philmont for fear that she would jump out of the car and run away <laughs> because she did not want to go to Boy Scout camp. And then of course she gets there and she does not want to go home. She's crying looking out the back of the car as we're driving away from Philmont. And it's just that kind of experience. And my wife still says it's the best vacation that she ever went on. Uh, because I was in training, but for her, she was I mean, she didn't have to worry about meals and she didn't have to worry about the kids and we'd meet at the end of the day and everyone would tell their story about what they did. And yeah, I had the most and I had the most boring stories because <laughs> <laughs> I was in class between the Philmont Training Center and the Philmont Staff Association and every everything in between. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's plenty of opportunities. I think that the, the Philmont Staff Association is is really trying to have active members that come back to the ranch and, and through the reunions and through, through all these other uh, opportunities to come visit the ranch, either by yourself or with your family or with your spouse, there are just a lot of ways to come back. I mean, if, if you love the place enough to, to go down there and work for multiple years, I mean, you, you really should go back and, and, and see it. So. Yeah, you owe it to yourself and to everyone else to to get back out there and give back. And um, I'm excited for for all of it. It's a bright future ahead. Do you uh, want to nominate anyone to be on the show? Phil Weingartner. You know, we had the, we had the reunion in Kansas City, and, and I was the MC. And I said that everybody loves Philmont. This was all a PSA reunion, and I said everyone here loves Philmont, but no one loves Philmont like Phil Weingartner. And he was on staff for six summers. I think he's done 13, tra- 13 PSA treks. 
Uh, he is just Mr. Philmont. I, I just, he's the best. I apologize if, if to your listeners for I mean, listening to these stories from 50 years ago, but there are those people from my era that have a different story to tell uh, of Philmont. For example, Dave Bates was on, uh, was on summer staff and then permanent staff. He came up with Philsar. We, th- when, when, when there was an emergency in the backcountry, if they had a lost kid or wh- whatever it was, th- it was just, okay, you go here and you go there. And it was not an organized thing. Dave Bates put together the first, uh, the Philsar program. He also put together the first planned itineraries back in the, in the sixties. Uh, before 1960, uh, the mid 1960s, you came to Philmont and they go, okay, what do you want to do? And then that, and then that's how you planned your itinerary. And, and itinerary planning took like a, an hour or more to figure out where you wanted to go and from here. And it was just a mess. Yeah. And Dave Bates did the first itineraries and he's, he just was on staff for a long, long time. Ned Gold is, a, is an old timer who was the first uh, president of the PSA. Steve Lewis is one of those guys that was in my explore post, but Steve Lewis was on staff many more years than I was. He, he and Steve Zimmer have written a couple of books about Philmont, and he is just a wealth of knowledge and a real interesting guy. Just really quickly here, don't apologize for sharing stories from back in the day. People love it. I love to share all the different generations of yeah. stories and, and experiences. So thank you. You know, it, it wasn't better. It was just different, sure. and, and it was and it was certainly more primitive. And and Philmont is safer now. And camping, backpacking. I mean, we're not using canvas tents anymore. And I mean, everything is just. It's not recognizable from the time that that, that I went as a camper and when I was there on staff. And it's so much better and easier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially for an old guy. So. <laughs> Do you have an 11th essential that you carry with you when you're backpacking? This is more practical than, than anything else, but I, my 11th essential is baby wipes. I don't camp without, without baby wipes. When we were doing, uh, building new trail and, and, uh, we were camped at whistle punk, which is a dry camp. And so you'd be working, you'd be building trail, which is really dirty work all day. And you'd go back and there's no place to clean. There's no way to clean up. And besides that, it's the end of the day. Well, I've done that for, for three years at whistle punk. And then another year when we were somewhere else, but I I found that you can give yourself a complete bath on five baby wipes. (laughs) That's awesome. I've done it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to demonstrate it, but I've done it. Uh, it, it, it can be done on five baby wipes and uh, it's wonderful. And I did that every single day. And the only thing you have to do is pack them out. You can't leave them behind. Sure. You have to pack them sure. out. Yeah. But, but with me, I put five in a Ziploc baggie. Shower in a bag. I mean, shower in a bag. <laughs> That's kind of it. I love it. It, it. it doesn't replace the real thing. You still look forward to having a shower when you get to base camp. But seriously, I mean. It does it the was, job. It, yeah. Looking back 50 years, 51 years since I was uh, first year on staff, you don't uh, don't lose track of the of the people that you were with. It's a lot easier today than 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 it was then. Take lots of pictures, document things, uh, try to. uh, And because right now, what few pictures I have of me or my staff 
I'm looking at with a magnifying glass or a, or a jeweler's loop to look at the little tiny details. It's like, what kind of boots was I, were I, you know, was I wearing back then? I mean, I'm really grasping for memories that, um, and you I mean, you don't really appreciate how important those memories are until years and years later. And it's such an, it's such an important part of your life. And I would, I'd say that anybody that uh, is, is, has been to Philmont on staff or, you know, is currently on staff, just try to document it as best you can, because you'll get to you'll get 50 years down the road and, and you'll be searching for for those memories. So, yeah, what you have in your memory is is, is just as good or maybe even better than the photos, oh, yeah. because the attention to detail, <laughs> just like your son, Dave, you guys are great storytellers. And these stories today were so much fun to, <laughs> to listen to. So thank you for being on the show. I, I appreciate your time tonight and uh, all your insights. Thanks, Caitlin. It was my pleasure. I loved it. Every minute of it. 